Let's pretend it's the end of this whole ugly story. We vanquished the foe and we triumphed in glory. There's nothing but rainbows and blue skies ahead. Hallelujah, amen, it's the end. We threw off the yoke and we broke all the shackles. We tore down the walls and we burned down the castle. The oppressors all scattered and naked they fled. Hallelujah, amen, it's the end. Welcome to Before the Future Came temporarily, not a Star Trek podcast. We're looking at the ideals of utopian science fiction as we voyage from one work to the next, following a breadcrumb trail of motifs. This month, we're talking about SCP-6001, Avalon, by T. Rutherford, a story from the SCP Wiki Collaborative Writing Project written in 2021. It was a finalist in the 6K contest. I'm Melissa, and this time, I know exactly where I am. I'm Gregory, zen-like in my total disbelief of the universe. I'm Lucy, and I am a calico after all. Since we're both doctors, we can spare the honorifics. Last episode, we discussed Will McCarthy's The Collapsium, which had humanity and a politically united society that made extensive use of teleportation for travel. Today, we're talking about SCP-6001, Avalon, which also features a version of humanity with a global, non-violent system of government and instantaneous travel around the world. Gregory picked it, so please give us a summary of the story in your own words. All right, here we go. This one's a little complicated. I, th- I say that, we say that every time. They're all complicated. It's, it's how some stories work. Yeah. It's science fiction. Researchers log. 11.26 p.m. Zero minutes ago. While browsing the Special Containment Procedure Database of the SCP Foundation, a shadowy organization that secures and contains anomalous objects and entities and protects humanity from them, you receive an email from Dr. David Caspian, the head of alt-dimensional research, telling you about his most incredible day. We then read a fully public phenomenon report, from an organization called the Compendium Phenomic Inquiry on Phenom number 6001, a micro-singularity in Tokyo that leads to a parallel universe called A6K. A6K, it seems, is our universe. A6K is far more violent and repressed than the CPI's dimension, and the full compendium is being called to render judgment on unity with A6K, whatever that means. The rest of the story alternates between two narratives. One is a series of brief opinion statements from the strange organizations that make up the compendium, voting yes or no on the topic of unity, with the running vote staying very close to 50-50. The other narrative is from Caspian's perspective, as he reports to you about his trip through the singularity that our universe's foundation calls SCP-6001. While studying SCP-6001, Caspian suddenly finds himself on a rooftop in an alien space-age Tokyo, talking to a house cat named Dr. Primrose. She is his counterpart in the compendium, and claims to have brought him to the other dimension as part of standard test procedure. She takes him on a tour of the world via a teleportation network that uses something called the Everywhere Chair, and she says that the compendium are the benevolent dictators of her universe, providing universal healthcare and all other necessities of life. Her world is vegan, hyper-technological, and has cured cancer. 
Caspian gradually learns that Primrose's world works with what it calls phenoms, instead of imprisoning them like the SCP Foundation does with its anomalies. Caspian recognizes many of these, including a deadly statue that's openly on display for tourists to see, and an unkillable murder dragon that roams free in Australia in large numbers. Caspian grows suspicious and tries to puzzle out the dark side of this apparent utopia. Primrose claims there isn't one. Her world's humans simply chose to exist alongside phenoms despite the dangers they pose. He finally believes her, and they go and get very drunk at a ramen bar where the cook is a weird nightmare creature. <laughs> After karaoke, Caspian gets separated from Primrose. He uses a roadside computer to try and find her and is accidentally patched into a stream of the ongoing debate on A6K Unity. Primrose finds him, and he confronts her about why he's actually there. She confesses that her world's Caspian was her best friend, but died working with Phenoms, and she wanted one last day with him. After a little joke about erasing his entire universe, she explains that the Compendium is voting on whether to reach out to the people of A6K or close off contact entirely. The vote is tied 6-6 six to six when Primrose's version of the Foundation casts the deciding vote. No. There will not be unity with A6K, but when they can make contact on their own, the Compendium will reconsider. Caspian is sent back home, but not before he gets permission to pet Primrose on the head. So, I really like this story. I think it's 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 interesting because it's in a, a collaborative project that's very horror-themed, and there's very little horror in this one. Like, mm -hmm. there's horror creatures in it, but, like, it doesn't feel horrific or scary which is interesting this is just a straight-up sci-fi story my topic is going to cover something that i feel is the horror of the story <laughs> for sure yes totally but uh, <laughs> i think actually i shouldn't we should note here that we probably should have noted it earlier but if you have not seen the previous show notes for hmm. our episode there is a glossary that goes alongside reading SCP-6001. So if you want to read the story and have some additional notes so that you don't feel like you have to read <laughs> all of SCP to get it, uh, that is up on beforethefuture.space. Yeah, so we just summed up and it'll, it'll be linked in these show notes too. Mm-hmm. I am not very knowledgeable of SCP and... I read this story and did just fine. So I don't think you have to have a lot of, I mean, maybe I missed a lot of important things. We'll find out about that soon, I guess. I, okay, so hold off. Maybe at the end of the episode, I will say you should read the glossary closely. We've each brought a topic for discussion. Uh, mine is um, disorientation. Uh essentially. I thought about disorientation a lot while I was reading the story. Can I just call it a story? Is it a story? Is that okay? Sure. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's a story. It's a... So I thought about disorientation a lot while I was reading because, of course, I was disoriented. Um, I think because it's not something that I am usually reading. Uh, but I, I think, I assume anybody reading it is also disoriented by the way things are changing. And um, as Gregory mentioned in the summary, the shift between the voting and the story between Caspian and Primrose that's happening. And even sort of the frame of it, 
um, which I expect we'll talk about a bit about the email at the beginning say that says to you, you know, I think the story creates a sense of um, disorientation. And I, I'd say that like your typical SCP reader might have a, a, a disorientation, <clears throat> might have a disorientation that's like uncanny familiarity, like feelings of, boy, that sounds familiar, but it, whatever it is, it's different enough that I'm not sure what it's talking about. So I think that well, holds true. So, uh, what I, what I was reminded of is this book, which I'm showing on the camera. It's, um, Sarah Ahmed's, uh, Queer Phenomenology. And in this book, uh, Ahmed traces the concept of dis disorientation, um, as a feeling of general discomfort and feeling out of place. And for her, this is a kind of metaphor for queerness and queer bodies, which she argues don't contain spaces, but become the spaces that they are in. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit and just want to sort of be clear that I'm talking about this from sort of a theoretical queer theory perspective and not like a representation of queerness, which I think are sort of two different concepts. We're not talking about gay and trans people. We're talking about a queer way of looking at the world. Yeah, which concerns LGBTQ plus people. But it also, mm -hmm. I mean, you can think about, you, you know, a good friend of mine wrote an article about queering um, writing instruction, right? Like you can talk about queering lots of things and you're not talking about having more representation of certain kinds of people in those spaces. I read Ahmed's book a long time ago, and uh, I found it to be a really useful framework. Um, the disorientation to me is, as I was saying before, really crucial to this story. Uh, Caspian is disoriented throughout the story. Literally, his body is transported into a new space and a new universe. He's disoriented by the ways in which Primrose knows him, although he is learning about her. There's a moment of deja vu where he feels like he's experienced the moment before. And I think deja vu is a kind of disorientation. And then toward the end, uh, Caspian and Primrose are literally drunk and disoriented in a sort of literal way. So Caspian's disorientation is reflected in his understanding of the worlds and his relationships <laughs> with others, notably Primrose, um, and how those relationships get framed in those worlds. So although I don't think this is a lowercase queer text, I do think it's a capital Q queer text because it queers our thinking about relationships um, and our relationships with worlds and spaces. Uh, and I think there's even sort of a queer conclusion in that the vote happens, but the door is left partially open uh, to something else, some other possibility. Yeah, we get this yes or no vote throughout, and then the final vote is like, is like I'm going to tie break. No, but kind of yes, maybe. Ahmed concludes her book, Queer Phenomenology, with this noticing, and this is a quote, if orientations point us toward the future, to what we are moving toward, then they also keep open the possibility of changing directions and of finding other paths, perhaps those do not clear perhaps those that do not clear a common ground where we can respond with joy what goes astray. And I find that to be an incredibly utopian version of the world on a way of thinking uh, and a version of queerness. 
um, that speaks of possibilities and joy um, and helps you think about orientation and the concept of disorientation in ways that have been um, generative for me. And that is what this story reminded me of, is the ways in which disorienting and being disoriented is sort of a path to orientation. So we're, t- we're talking about like, like uh, accepting that maybe you don't know where you're going to end up or realizing that you've been headed in the wrong direction in life and thinking and so on and being willing to pivot. Is that the sort of kind of disorientation and productive reorientation? It's so funny. <laughs> I was just, you know, with a good friend of mine yesterday and she was reminding me how much I despise the word pivot. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the, that's the same sort of orientation, right? It's like, what's your path? What's your goal? Where, where are you headed? And I, I don't want to say a lot of nice things about Dan Savage. So take this with (laughs) caution, but he said something um, years and years ago when I was listening to him and he was talking about how when the things that you feel and want internally are things that you're able to do externally, like you, (laughs) there, there's some joy that comes from the ability to live Mm -hmm. like that. And he was talking explicitly about queerness, right? Like being able to live the way you feel, um, is important. And there's something about that, that I'm reminded of in this too, you know, when you're able to point yourself in the right direction, (laughs) um, at least what feels like the right direction, um, or have some, um, some clues for orientation. I mean, cause we're all always disoriented, you know, disorientation is a part of the experience of being a human, but finding ways to orient yourself is, is work, <laughs> maybe the work of being a person. Yeah. As he's moving through the story, as David is moving through the story, he is grasping for reference points kind of constantly this is supposed to behave this way. This is supposed to behave this other way. What are my anchor points? And there are almost none. There are very few. <laughs> and the way he learns about primrose, like, oh, that's a cat saying. That's something cats are allowed to say. That was funny. Uh, am I allowed to say that? But and also like understanding her, like understanding um, their relationship is a kind of orientation um in the story it's interesting i am thinking of queer phenomenology so like phenomenology is like what it's like to experience things right like what it's like to feel things and there's a lot of places in this book that made me think of um object-oriented ontology and and the that we discussed earlier of like there are all sorts of ways of being that this story is like that's a fine way of being like it's fine to be a cat it's fine to be a weird deadly sculpture it's fine to be a fish out of water in this world and like everyone's very accepting even of caspian's like accusations of them being some sort of evil conspiracy part of the thing that that caspian has trouble with is is something that that is core to to my topic which is that this is of this is a very interesting exploration of pacifism and nonviolence. Uh, this world 
Um, although, I mean, Primrose admits at one point or, or accepts. It's, it's not like she's confessing to it. It's just like she's like, yeah, we've had war. There was martial conflict that was required to enter into the world that we are in. But, like, the, the way that this universe has become peaceful and so on is a through like a through literal mutually assured destruction in the sense of i i did not go get into this but basically all of the powers of this world became strong enough that they realized that fighting each other would result in apocalypse and also that they could team up against the real problem so like wherein in a6k in in the default scp world um there are these you know evil gods and strange forces of nature that cannot be stopped and and there's these shadowy organizations that are kind of feuding with each other and and each claiming that they have the best way to to hold off this apocalypse Mm -hmm. in this world they're like no let's team up and use all this weird stuff we have and just kill the devil and stuff like that and they end up in this society where having done having removed the worst of the of the existential risks and of the things that are truly antithetical to to joy uh they have proceeded from a perspective of pacifism um of like of saying we're not going to hold things prisoner we're not going to kill things and fight even if it means we will die along the way because like there, there's been a decent amount of pacifist discussion in in philosophy. A whole lot more of the discussion around nonviolence and pacifism has been either opposition to wars run by a powerful state from individuals, or um, mm-hmm. ways to resist against oppressors by marginalized people. So, like, think Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., people who recognized that... Um, you know, if they're going to kill you anyway, you might as well put yourself at risk strategically and like use the fact that they will, that the, the power will be aggressive towards you um, in order to forward your cause. Um, and that's not actually what's happening here. This is a right. world in which the benevolent dictators, the people in power are deliberately nonviolent now they deliberately accept the fact that sometimes your researchers are going to get killed by the monster you're trying to talk to and it's better that they get killed Mm -hmm. and that monster becomes your friend than they get killed and your monster becomes your prisoner forever or another existential threat uh and it's really uh it's it's a kind of a refreshing way of depicting this sort of utopia um the uh i i was looking for kind of like what what what's a good quote to use to talk about this philosophy and robert l holmes is a philosopher who wrote pacifism a philosophy of nonviolence, and he has like a really straightforward argument against war in that uh i mean it takes a very long time to 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 elaborate it and and make it convincing but his basic argument is we can assume that a war is going to be bad right because wars involve killing a lot of people so we can start from the assumption that any given war is going to be bad. And then in order to make that war acceptable, you must then be able to prove that 
it causes enough good in some whatever it doesn't have to be utilitarian however you determine what the war is what is good about a war Mm -hmm. you have to be able to balance out you have to be able to prove that this war this war in particular is good and his argument is like you might have a concept of a just war but if so you've got to admit that virtually no war has ever met it has ever met those criteria and yet we keep doing it and and that that is that's morally inconsistent Uh, and it's a it's it's a very like cutting the gordian knot approach to looking at this violence which is like hey why don't we just do the good thing instead (laughs) which is which is a a refreshing way of not getting bogged down in all those all the um really rough stuff about figuring out war and violence and so on especially like i was thinking about this story and current events with with you know genocide going on in the middle east and stuff like that Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me wistful, but maybe hopeful. I don't know. You're actually making me think of a parallel between this story and Binti and Uma University. I think that there are some kind of similarities. You remember the faculty meeting where they discussed everything brusquely and they were even welcoming to um, the tentacled people. The Medusae? The Medusae, who had basically, they were the monsters, you know, that were basically welcomed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know. Seems similar. And you can, you, can, you can kind of contrast this with Star Trek, which, you know, we're not talking about. But <laughs> a lot of other utopian science fiction kind of has the attitude of, well, if we're the good ones, well, of course, we're sometimes going to have to go to war. We're sometimes we're going to have to use our weapons to kill things that are dangerous in order to save lives. Uh, and this world, the world of Avalon, would kind of be like, no, we're not going to attack this thing, even if it is killing things, until we have figured out why it's killing things and how to convince it to stop. And that's a, yeah. It's a, a p- very plausible political philosophy to me, right? Like some utopias, it's like, how did you do that by magic? It's like, well, I can understand how you, how that is an appealing worldview to have. I mean, it is, it is my worldview. And I think it's presented in the story in a way that makes me feel like it could convince other people. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion of, or not discussion of, there's a lot of instances of consent in the story mm-hmm. that go from the micro to the macro and the one that stuck with me as so charming it's very micro it does not apply to wars but Frimrose and David are talking about um, the Atlantic super city so there's a mm-hmm. very large underwater city that's basically it's called the Atlantic one but it's in the Pacific I don't know um, but it's a big city I think it's because it is Atlantis Oh, I think is the joke. Right. <laughs> now I get it. Uh, but they're talking about how, um, you know, animals were given the option of sentience, of, of full-on sentience. And Primrose says, um, if we're ranking the failures of, of Pact 15, which is sort of this, this animal arrangement, in terms of hostility, uh, the octopodi sit somewhere between jellyfish and aphids. 
and the insects nearly caused hell on Earth. David says, what happens with what happened with the jellyfish? And Primrose says, a moment of consciousness, then a very polite, no thank you. And they find it hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it is, a, it is a funny story, yeah. but it's also like, fuck yes. Like, I'll get into this a bit more later, but like one of the things that I think characterizes my limited experience with SCP is a distinct lack of consent. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that like is... It's, it's, it is a horror setting in which like we're depicting an evil organization. Exactly. Um, and so I think to have a good philosophy of pacifism and nonviolence explicitly or otherwise consent enters the picture do you let people how do you let people say no (laughs) what happens when they do uh and i think this story weaves that in very well is it because they went to a different universe that that was possible possible to be to to be pacifist Uh, yeah i don't know i guess i'm just wondering i mean I think the story is kind of arguing that I think the story is arguing no, right? Cuz in the story they're like we really aren't that different. Like our two worlds have very different like societies and different just A6K, which is our world, uh is just more violent and more oppressive and and less empathetic. But like there's not like a certain point in history where things went differently. There's not like some neurological difference. They, they just, they're just like, yeah, we're as close as two dimensions can be. And for some reason, y'all are oppressive and evil and violent, and we are less so. I think the story is like, we could just stop. We could just stop fighting and be peaceful right today is, is kind of what the story is saying. I think there's some tension there. I think it it seems like if I don't I don't know how many hairs to, are possible to split. It feels like the author has this has this viewpoint. I'm not sure David uh, that David Caspian does. I think it's a little yeah. More I don't ambiguous. I don't think Caspian is one over. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um. And I definitely think that the story is clear that, like, this is a very costly philosophy. Like, yeah. if if you go into this, if you do a pacifism, people are going to die. A lot of people are going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, even the even the capitalists uh, are like, hey, if you, you know, why don't these folks realize that if they were just pay the price they could have the world <laughs> yeah the the one of the groups is the partnership uh yes. who's like all the equi- the the good equivalents of all the evil organizations from from our universe corporations really right like yeah they are were they a no vote or a yes vote they were a no vote they said we have the resources yes but why invest them in a venture destined to fail we didn't spend the last hundred years retrofitting capitalism, eliminating billionaires, and rebalancing globalism just to start all over again. A6K is still a world of tiny golden kingdoms. Our counterparts need to realize on their own that they could have the whole world if they just pay the damn cost. And the time and resources it would take to break them of their greed, we cannot afford them. The partnership of three vote no. 
that's uh there's adam smith for you the fact that this that we're presented with a world in which all of the cost of overhauling society has already been paid mm-hmm. in 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 for the most part at least uh makes this seem much more appealing right because we're seeing like oh well all the bodies have been buried at this point um right and uh but i don't know that capitalism or other vectors of power will go down without a huge fight yeah there's there's a segment on that that i think is is interesting and optimistic but yeah i think you're right so speaking of of costs <laughs> i want to talk about jailers i want to talk about people who run jails um, so i have read scp i've read a few scp articles over the years none recently until this sort of burst so although i'm going to talk about like scp this is sort of from the perspective of reading this story and blooming out more than Mm -hmm. recollecting things i read five six years ago but i think one way to look at the story is is look at the tension of the story is as being between david and uh as a david as a jailer who was faced with those who would be imprisoned he is a cop looking at (laughs) ex-convicts and flinching at the possibility that they might do the thing he is absolutely 100 percent confident they are going to do and and i mean david caspian is more like a prison doctor in this sense like he's that's always not now i mean i'm not saying he's good he's good (laughs) but like his job in our universe is like he doesn't really have to work with the prisoners right he he is not he is not generally jailing people he's like looking through rifts and going sending prisoners sending incarcerated people on expeditions that are probably deadly and stuff like that right Um, so he might not have the keys to the door or sign the checks but he is nonetheless in the role of a jailer in our society um in a 6k society and if i take this story as it is he does not seem he doesn't even register the cruelty of scp's actions particularly like he acknowledges that they are imprisoning people they're torturing a child they're doing these various things um but even imprisoning a person for decades is cruelty Mm -hmm. to imprison them and then torture them is I think what currently the masses would say is cruel, but is an additional cruelty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he he doesn't even he doesn't even come into this discussion <laughs> with this idea that like maybe we're doing a bad. Um, yeah, and and meanwhile, like the first compendium entry, the first compendium opinion we get is from the wanderers who are like, hey the one other time someone's come across from this universe it was a person who was being held prisoner and enslaved and he fell in love with one of our people and then had to go back and like 
that's not cool. We don't like this universe. Exactly. We need to liberate them. We need to have unity. We vote yes, but like, yeah, they see it as liberatory. So when there's a there's a point at which they go to a museum and David sees a statue that is a sort of well known famous SCP thing. Uh, it's a statue the that first is, SCP, arguably. Yeah, um, it's a statue where if you look away from it if it is unseen uh you it it will move and in our world probably kill you or kill something um and caspian asks it, it, currently in let's see in this alternate world the statue is set up as an art piece so it is given one second a day to move itself into a new position and then people come and stare at it all day and so Caspian asks, are you, aren't you worried it might, you know, and Promo says, might what? Hurt someone? Kill someone? Oh, it might, if we were ever so disrespectful to lock it away and leave it unseen, letting it wallow in its own filth. Any person would do the same. It's a statue, David. It's art. It stops when it's seen because it wants to be seen. And it's just one of those things where Primrose is just saying, like, the basic humane thing, which is if you lock a person up, and leave them to wallow in their filth, they are going to be miserable. Mm -hmm. They're going to be miserable and they're going to try to get free. <laughs> and it's even, I would say it's even more basic than, I feel like this is what I teach every day. Like our work is to figure out what people need. <laughs> and then <laughs> exactly. I'm in education, by the way. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> to figure out what people's needs are and help them meet those needs. And when we consistently refuse to do that, well then, yeah, like bad things happen, but then the answer is not to build a prison for the monster. The answer is figure out what it, and I loved this part so much. I'm so glad you brought it up, Melissa. <laughs> yes, it, it was one of my favorite parts. The other part was about this everywhere chair, which I will touch on lightly mm -hmm. for the, the sake of brevity, but in the SCP world, in A6K, the everywhere chair, the teleportation chair is a pile of wood chips. Because another secret society put it in a wood chipper. And so And even... so now those wood chips teleport around and kill people by right. teleporting to the lungs and stuff. And so the entire containment protocol for this pile of debris is to make sure no one aggravates it and gives it something mildly useful to do. It wants to be useful, so let it be mildly useful. And don't aggravate it, and if it gets upset play an alarm and let people know it's this this is a trauma response on the part of this chair mm -hmm. and the reaction is not actually to do anything to heal it it is not to find where it wants to be and what it wants to be but it is instead to to put it off to contain it to keep it just tame enough right that it isn't hurting anything and even when david comes across and he sees this everywhere chair he's like uh he says why not just carry those atoms of this chair around in pins or wristbands why bother having chairs at all and Primrose is like it doesn't want to be a pin it wants to be a chair so we're, we're having it wants to be a chair it's going to be a chair um and it just it just fits and just explains like david's tendency to look towards you know he asks like is our 
all animals like this? Are all things like this? He's looking for these boxes and these these containments, right? These these ways of parceling up people um, that I think just does a very, very good job at at going to a person who reads this space, who is in the SCP world as a reader, and saying, hey, this is you. I'm you. And here is our mindset. <laughs> we are a mindset that cannot expect that cannot escape imprisoning. I want to just yes and that to say <laughs> it's also it's it's also that he is trained to be distrustful, right? Mm-hmm. To distrust the the phenoms. Um, and that's what when when Primrose points out that they trust the statue. Yeah, we trust it not to be a concrete killing machine. Oh right. And and that is like that is an unthinkable, unthinkable to him. And I do think that is a commentary on, like, I feel there's a lot happening here that's a commentary on modern science, you know, mm-hmm. and the, you know, the desire to not trust um, instead of to maybe accept or trust. And uh, for people who like the idea of treating monsters like people and realize figuring out what they need um that this there's a passing there's a cameo in this story from the ramen chef the ramen Mm. cook that when when they're starting to drink uh, is a weird monster um and that is scp 5031 which the story in our world is kind is much more tragic but kind of sweet where it's like it starts off as a here's this description of this weird monster and some experiments we did with it while it was imprisoned and the researchers gradually realizing that this creature is just kind of a sweetheart who likes to cook <laughs> um highly recommend that one it's it's one of my favorite um scp stories and this actually has a lot of ties in this story has a lot of ties into the wild robot i think too with the communication piece Mm-hmm. have been able to communicate with people who communicate differently than you is important. Oh, God. Yeah. 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 And they go through a lot of effort to communicate. Uh, the the Primrose is unwilling to tell Caspian, like, all of the, the, the tricks that they do because, you know, a vague sort of prime directive sort of thing is the implication. They don't want to contaminate his universe. Um, but, like they their process for talking to some of these creatures like has hundreds of steps to it like combining (laughs) a whole bunch of different weird phenomenons and technologies and so on to be able to even begin to figure out what things might want and they consider it worth it yeah they're this is what they're spending their research efforts on instead of nuclear missiles and so on all right so with the main topics covered, it's time for a quick lightning round of other interesting things we spotted. An old version of me, of Lucy, used to sort of shit talk reader response theory, which is <laughs> the idea that, you know, what you personally and your personal experience and background bring to a story is important in an important way, lens for reading literature. <laughs> literature um but uh i'm going to focus on my own personal response to this story for a moment here and for me i I mean all this cool 
SCP references. I mean, I'm totally here for talks about prison and capitalism, queer phenomenology. But the beating heart of this story for me was Primrose and her grief for her friend. Yeah, like this is this is the kind of Orphean ideal of being able to pull your friend from a world where he is still alive and talk to him. You know, I <laughs> I was reading this story and I thought for a long time, I was like, oh, you know, he's a phenom. He's something she's studying. You know, he's, I, you know, I had all of these theories that were a part of, you know, my perception of SCP and what it is. But then to find out in the end that she's grieving and she saw an opportunity to have her friend for a day and she offers for him to stay, you know, um, and I think, I think she knows, you know, that he won't. And I think she also knows that it's not really him, you know, it's not really her friend, but, um, you know, I have, um, I have struggled so much with grief for the past couple of years and I have, I just really identified really hard with that cat <laughs> in that story, that little cat with her PhD and her little jacket <laughs> and her big ball of grief that, you know, caused her to, you know, make a choice that doesn't really make sense, you know, for her work or for her life, but just because it's this thing that she feels and, um, and just not even from a part of this, like, of this whole writing project and the and, and all and all of that stuff, but just from a story perspective, I thought it was lovely um, and heartbreaking, and also um, a reminder that <laughs> those connections that people have, the connections you know that we feel for each other, are. Um, important <laughs> i guess well i didn't mean for it to be me crying <laughs> again i crying too <laughs> i teared up three times maybe four times reading this story i sobbed i sobbed <laughs> at the end about this fucking cat <laughs> that's what i'll say grief is weird yeah and i really understand that cat we talked about that hard science fiction, soft science fiction divide last time about the Collapsium. And like, this is solid soft sci-fi, right? Like, this is entirely about politics and sociology and, and feelings. But like, even, even your most standard hard sci-fi story, like, almost certainly the thing at its core is something deeply emotional, if the story's any good, right? Like, it's it's grief or passion and like you know we some of our more most stereotypical justifications for characters in in fiction are things like revenge and and like mm -hmm. trying to redeem yourself for for some thing that you were mourning that you did um and like it always feels to me a little goofy when i tear up over you know some anime kid who's trying super hard or a cat who's sad about her friend or anything like that but like i don't know it's fiction right 
Yeah. Something that stuck in my head as I was uh, was reading this that like kind of helps make it feel a little realer to me is that this is an epistolary story, um, which when it's like when people when we all learned this in middle school probably or high school, <laughs> um, epistolary stories are stories made up of letters, right? So like. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is an epistolary story because it's all letters and journals and, and stuff like that. And and more generally, epistolary stories are stories where all all or most of the text in them is real in-universe text, what kind of a game design person would call diegetic text. Mm-hmm. Like, this this story is... Its entire frame is an email uh, from caspian in which he's sort of written up like uh incident reports in a in a style that's very similar to the rest of the wiki um and then like selections from the minutes of this meeting and one government report uh and it kind of gives everything this immediacy to it where it's like you're not Especially with how this is presenting um, such a such a far fetched or such an alien feeling universe, uh, the fact that everything we're seeing is either a direct eyewitness report or a you know the dialogue that someone said um, or a letter that someone wrote sort of makes it feel like um, you can you can do the reading between the lines, but the lines are things that you're you're not arguing with. Right. If there was a narrator yeah. here telling you all this, where it's like, and it turned out that this universe was completely legitimate, you could be like, <laughs> hey, narrator, I don't think you've proven that. But in this case, we can be like, I don't know. You know Primrose says so. And the way that these people talk among themselves, it sure seems to hold up with, with this, that they genuinely have these utopian ideals. Um, and And I think that that's... It's interesting, especially in this project, in the in an SCP story, to see it used in this way, um, because so generally speaking, the SCP project as a whole is epistolary. Um, the your your kind of stereotypical and stop me if we're gonna if you y'all want to talk about this as part of Ten Forward, um, but your typical uh, SCP story is a a report. That is like here's how to protect yourself from this thing or here's how to keep this thing contained uh and it's always written from that perspective there are often redactions um there are no redactions in this story no black bars covering any words um mm-hmm. except maybe maybe in the opening email no not even the opening email um but like usually the way that this epistolary process is deployed in scp stories or scp entries uh is uh to kind of provide horror through omission like this thing didn't end up in the report the report isn't going to say what actually happened to these people it's just going to say you shouldn't do what they did or you'll suffer a terrible fate that we're not even going to mention um and and so it's it's deployed in this horrific way instead of being deployed almost as a like case study in this story where it's like hey here's here are the what these characters think here's what these characters are saying and doing and there's no 
I mean, of course there's editorializing and all, all manner of it, but like there's the feeling that this, there's not being, there's not a narrative, not a narrator offering their opinion or their interpretation. It feels almost documentary mm-hmm. in that fashion. I think that's interesting. Yeah, it's documentary for an inside group. He's not reporting this up to his bosses. He's reporting it to his peers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like, not going to tell the bosses. <laughs> yeah. He's one specific person that you, he, so the whole thing is an email to you, the reader. And he's like, mm-hmm. I know someone who I can tell this story to and trust that they're gonna not going to do the wrong thing with this information. Honestly, we learn everything we need to know about Caspian from the subject line. He gives that fucking email. Important. Subject important. Oh, come on. Unacceptable. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'd have deleted it. I wouldn't even have read it. <laughs> the only thing worse is if it didn't have a subject line. <laughs> Fuck off, David. <laughs> I guess another, like, just format thing to note is that um, this didn't have to be an SCP entry. Like, this is positioned as if it is a containment containment instructions for scp 6001 which it isn't like those containment instructions don't appear here but like this could have been a story there are just straight up stories on the scp wiki that are like written with a narrator uh, about events in the foundation but like aren't part of the the kayfabe of aren't, aren't in character in the in the fiction are not epistolary in that way they're just like one day, researcher X was walking down the hallway, right? But the creator here chose to make this a an entry, and, and although the only actual entry we get is this compendium phenomic inquiry document, that's like, here's what this thing is. This is a public document. This isn't containment instructions. Yeah, I was gonna ask, like, did he just? clip this article and take it with him because it says share copy and disseminate this knowledge as you see fit in the compendium mm-hmm. phenomic inquiry so you, you think he just like took that shit in his pocket and took it with him <laughs> i mean if we're talking literally yeah maybe i feel like the the phenom report and the like minutes of the meeting aren't actually being delivered to us in character i think i feel like all that's in the email is caspian's narrative but okay. i can certainly yeah. see an argument that like he just grabbed it you know had it printed and tucked it in his pocket or something or maybe he just asked for it and they gave it to him yeah, maybe <laughs> they don't seem like they have a lot of secrets they do not although doesn't primrose Primrose is like, hey, don't tell them. Yeah, Primrose says, you're not going to tell them, are you? Your bosses, I mean, because her head was, her head's hanging low. Um, And he's like, oh, good God, no. And she seems pleased um, that he wasn't going to tell them. So probably sharing this stuff isn't, isn't what they want to have happen. Not on, not on this side of the rift. Yeah. Yeah. So my lightning round item uh, very much relates to the structure as well and raises some political questions, which, so Greg already talked about the, the interwoven structure of this. And I, sometimes I read things and I feel like a, a naive baby when I read things. I was on like tender hooks about this boat mm-hmm. because 
as you're reading this voted as, as greg mentioned it's broken up throughout the story at first you get two yes votes yes we're gonna we're gonna free uh these these sad folks that are living terribly then you get a no vote and i'm like uh-oh <laughs> this is not that kind of utopian story <laughs> in which everyone over here is 100% benevolent and in unity on what benevolence means. And then you get two more no votes. And then you're like, well, how many voting bodies are there? How many, how high is this number <laughs> going to get? Is it going to tie? Uh, will it be close? Like, what if there are six voting bodies and you're like, this is it, right? Um, and, and you're kind of not even sure whether you want a yes vote or a no vote, right? Because the mm -hmm. people saying yes are like, we should help them. But also, like, you're voting on something called unity from this suspicious thing that <laughs> even we as readers are not sure if it's truly utopian or some sort of secret horror. And liberating people, like, that can sometimes be sus. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, at, you know, we're still finding out as, this, as these votes are coming in what the cost of this liberty is, right? Like... Where are the bad parts of this world? Where are the what are the cost benefits and the trade-offs that they have had to make? So you're really not sure if you want that vote. And then I'm like, will we even be told the final vote? Is there going to be something mm -hmm. that like ends the report right before the final group? You know, does it? Um, that would be another so classic SCP wiki story move. Exactly, exactly. Um, so my my selective familiarity with scp uh i think helped <laughs> helped make this fun but as as lucy mentioned the final vote is from the foundation which would be the scp foundation if it were our world mm -hmm. um and they say um they vote no don't help them don't help us uh but with an addendum we seal the gate but not entirely we keep an eye on a6k and let them find us when they do, we'll greet them without security, containment, or any protections. When they're ready to step into the light, we'll be here. Shall we take it to a vote? And I am like, how many votes? How, how many? <laughs> Please tell me. These people who pulled a Binti faculty meeting and over the course of ostensibly one day resolved an incredibly important world-changing matter... <laughs> decided this and then open another vote is this what they do all day every day is this like a is this a once every five years kind of thing that requires them to all come together and vote and to be clear like these groups and i'll, I'll be going through them in a, a little bit more later like these groups are like one of them is a bunch of weird supernatural commandos one of them is the fey realm one of them is just a bunch of bigfoots right like, <laughs> These aren't all just like human government bureaucratic cabinets. Right. One of them is nobody. Mm -hmm. Like capital N nobody. <laughs> um, so I have no answers. I just have questions. I want to know what cadence, like what rates important enough to pull in all these different factions for them to give these little speeches each one of them gives a little speech, written or otherwise. I kind of assumed written, but uh, who knows? Maybe they're all chit-chatting each other over Zoom. 
Um, but I want to know how this world works. It's you get the feeling that it's big enough to be on the news, like because right. he he mentions A6K and the computer's like, oh, you want to watch the A6K discussion? Mm-hmm. But also, like, it's not being broadcast on like they're walking when he's walking through new york city he doesn't see it on the screen at times square right right anyway i found that interesting i found this this sort of little setup of a of a weird government that theoretically if the world is kind of what primrose suggests in terms of having solved a lot of big things they shouldn't need this panel of seven groups to do a ton of work (laughs) the template should be set but um i have questions i don't know i want fanfic of this now who's the panel of seven groups the seven entities that voted uh oh 13 13. sorry 13 not seven oh okay yeah yes i missed something big no 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 no. (laughs) it's definitely 13 (laughs) you were playing it was seven to six it was seven to six, and so that's so I had seven in my head. I thought that last part from the foundation was, I thought that was the creepiest part. Like, they're ready to step into the light, we'll be here. Like, nobody mm-hmm. ever says that and means it in a good way. I guess maybe if you're the angel Gabriel or something, but I don't know. It doesn't. Yeah, and one of the other groups talks about, like, the, the a- A6K needs to have the will. They need to find the will in themselves. Um, oh, the Synthetic Assembly, which is a group of robots. Synthetic robots seems to be the term. Um, and uh, they need a will that is set on their own liberation. So, which I get. Like, I, I don't think they're wrong um, necessarily, but that gets into the complication of whether you want a yes or a no vote. So, in addition to the deep stuff, we're also all big utopian sci-fi fans. So let's head to 10 Forward to talk about stuff we geeked out about. I will start with uh, what I have called the a unifying, unifying works of fan fiction. So, I adore a work that weaves together a universe. That's like, here is a thing that exists over the course of 75 books or a thousand um articles whatever it is and i'm gonna i'm gonna piece them together selectively of course um and that's just one of my favorite kinds of stories and this this is like a love letter to the scp community mm-hmm. this author is is just like hey i'm gonna write this piece as greg talked about with the sort of epistolary thing it's not a report in the normal way of an SCP piece. It's, we get a reimagining of this writer's top hits of SCP, mm-hmm. right? Like if, this- it's, if it's not clear from the summary, like I skipped over a lot of detail. There's like maybe 30 items in my glossary that I wrote up that are like important references in there. And then there's like probably a hundred total references just little obscure pieces of scp lore in here exactly and a lot of it is a lot of it is changed right it has to be to show what its alternate universe existence would be so it's not just that you know i don't know the i don't have a concrete example um 
Yeah, I don't have concrete examples, so let me... Yeah, the, the, it's like that floating island that shows up mm. in the... Mm-hmm. After you learn about the octopodes, or the octopodi, um, like, there's this big floating sky castle that's like one scp but then it turns out that living there is like a different group that's another reference that i didn't get um the get library like, the yeah. library was a combination of i think three or four different scp entities like paper dragons and a person living in a storybook and mm-hmm. all sorts of things sort of morphed and changed and, and reimagined um and I came into reading this like, like SCP, if you were to, to take SCP as a work, despite the fact that it does have cross-references within itself, it does refer to things in the real world sometimes, obliquely or otherwise, it's paying homage to various horror tropes and all sorts of things, and certainly has invented its own, like, it is a body of work that exists and is important on the internet as that that gets riffed on in and of itself but this particular piece of scp to me is fan fiction mm-hmm. i mean it's, it is literally an scp au right like right. it is literally yep. what if scp was cool was good yeah um and i did not expect to find that in scp my my sort of perception of scp is as a space that takes itself very seriously or quite seriously um as producing an important work and so uh i like i like what an author's like yeah and and we'll just make it part of the thing we're not going to put this over here with side stories or or whatever all right i'm going to talk about cats some more (laughs) excellent (laughs) first in order to prove that this is a utopian sci-fi thing i must point to exhibit a Isaac Asimov's 1942 short story, Time Pussy. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't make this up. This is true. You could have gone with the cat who walks through walls, but you're going to go with Time Pussy? I didn't. I'm going with Time Pussy. In Time Pussy, written by my favorite sci-fi writer, Isaac Asimov. I don't know, maybe Octavia Butler, but I still love Isaac Asimov. (laughs) Um, He wrote about these cats um, that lived on an asteroid. It, that stretched somewheres into the middle of next week. Um, <laughs> the the time pussy would howl 24 hours before seeing a robber and digest their meals three hours before eating them. Um, it was kind of like a normal cat. Yeah, like <laughs> this is, they're like kind of non-time oriented. People were willing to pay a whole lot of money on Earth for the remains of a time pussy, but they would decay too quickly after death. <laughs> they tried to soak the time pussies in water just before they died, uh, like quickly freezing them, but they couldn't do that because the water so froze so quickly it was still warm. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, I know we're not talking about Star Trek, but I also love Spot. Um, <laughs> I think you just want to say pussy about a hundred times in a podcast I definitely episode. have not yet said pussy 100 times. <laughs> I would have to say pussy several more times <laughs> in order to get to 100. Um, and I, I guess I will add that I was 
100% won over by the prospect of reading this story when um, <laughs> the beginning. However, what drew my attention the most was the fact that there was now absolutely a cat. Uh, it sat facing me, perched on the rooftop's edge. It had a coat of spotted orange, white, and brown, all underneath an actual coat. A violet blazer, specifically. Beneath the blazer's collar was a long, glossy white bow held in place by a strange black brooch, itself shaped like a half-lidded eye inside a cradled globe. The cat's eyes, sharp and green, peered at me through a pair of small gold spectacles balanced on its nose. And then she says, ma'am is correct. I am a calico after all. You can call me Primrose. Since we're both doctors, we can spare the honorifics. And I knew I loved this cat very much. Is it only later that we find out she's also wearing a derby? <laughs> I'm, I do not. I will have to do a search. You or did I misread that part? There's a part where Caspian is drunk. And insulting her fashion sense. I, she says, you're go I'm going to drink it, David, and you're going to help me. <laughs> oh my gosh. She's the best cat. Uh, don't talk to him like that. And another thing, Little Miss Stylish, Little Miss Blazer and Bow, orange and purple don't mix. Okay, so no bowler, just the her fur and the coat? Yeah, yeah. Which Girl, she's orange. He's wrong. He's wrong. As a as a person who will do purple anything, purple and orange can go great together. They're Clemson colors, which is problematic, but it's not the cat's <laughs> fault. She's she's calico, like and violet is great. I like the bit where uh, this giant murder dragon is approaching and she just like immediately goes up to the window and sits down in front of it. Very cat yep. behavior. Um, uh, when she, she jumps up a... onto his shoulder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she has a collar that like expands into a hundred spider arms that lets her manipulate things. Uh, she seems to just eat human food. She seems to just eat ramen and sushi and booze. And yep. be fine because they've created a technology that will finally let cats eat whatever they want. Well, the my my fan thing is um, a, a thing that happens in genre fiction, generally sci-fi, fantasy, sometimes in horror, where like you get a a a group with a political view that just goes out and says it just like has a vision statement for what they believe that's like real quick to be summed up and is, is easy to digest and like this has a can have a bad side right where you're like oh all the klingons are warlike and and say that today is a good day to die but like when it's specifically about a like a political group i think it's really cool so i'm thinking of mm -hmm. like babylon 5 which is struck works don't go watch it but it has two groups there, the, the Cylons and the Shadows. And the Cylons always, not the Cylons, that's the, Battlestar Galactica. You're the, thinking of the... The... Vorlons? Vorlons, thank you. Vorlons oh, okay. and the Shadows. So the Vorlons, although that also might be a Mass Effect alien, <laughs> but we're going to go with it. Um, the Vorlons always ask, who are you? 
Uh, and they, you know, when they meet a new person, they say, who are you? And then the person's like, I'm so-and-so. They're like, but who are you? Uh, and then the shadows have their representatives ask, what do you want? And like in those ways, like that kind of defines how these two cultures re- re- like think about the world and interact with the world and like what you can expect of them in the story. And then like both from a what's their narrative role and then also like what's their literal like event-based role in, in causing the events of the story to happen. And mm-hmm. this this story just has like, it's just got 13 short essays. They're just like, here's what we believe. Uh, it's really cool. So you can kind of get a real high-level summary of what's going on in this society and the groups that make it up. Mm-hmm. We get the Wanderers, who are like the... Uh, we want to explore and learn new things and they call unity liberation they're the ones who are like these people are jailers uh we need to liberate their world uh the charity which is like a, a group of people who who in our you know in in a6k like try and help people and do awful things to them instead but in this world they they call unity salvation they say they want to save uh a6k uh the assembly um, which is the the robot people I think uh, say it's enlightenment uh, and then let's later parroted by the foundation saying bring them into when they want to see the light or when they want to come into the light um, the partnership sees unity as an expense uh, they say it's too expensive we can't afford it uh, the collective sees unity as uh, disruption as like trying to invoke authority on on someone uh the absent party sees unity as redemption as something that could be made up that that could make up for something in the past um the workshop who are the like factory and and like union people see it as working together the apex who are sasquatch uh (laughs) see unity as reaching out oh no i'm sorry the apex are not sasquatch i forget who this the nocturnal or the sasquatch and they see unity as letting letting the other universe in Whoever the apex apex are, see it as reaching out. The Watchers see it as solidarity with another universe. Uh, the Unnamed sees Unity as like traveling a path. They're the Fey people, I think. Peacekeepers, who are the military folks, see Unity as trust. And the Foundation sees it as stepping into the light. And so you just get real fast 13 groups who definitely blur together. I'm not saying that like in this, you come out of the story being like, I understand the political structure of the compendium, but like you get this series of real quick snapshots of here are all the different views that make it up and they're incredibly Mm -hmm. diverse, but also like pretty well formed. Like you can go up and be like, well, didn't that other group just describe it this way? But this, this group thinks this instead. And so you can, you get that, like, it's like in a, in a sci-fi movie where, there's a bunch of aliens in a room, but each one of them looks cool and different. And you're like, I could bet there you could write a whole story about that dude with the weird <laughs> nose and the long stick. And then it's mm-hmm. just like the camera moves past. And that's the last you see of that guy. Um, this kind of has that feel to me of like, here's, here's real quick, 13 kinds of weird utopian agencies and what they might think of what's going on. Like that that sort of thing is always super cool to me. Yeah, and I think it's really well done here. I think there's still a stereotype in our cultural perception of utopia, especially as would manifest in the real world, 
that there must be that that unity of government means a distinct lack of diversity in opinion mm -hmm. that you have to have all come together and that means not not hugely divergent opinions on things and i like what a story and several of course you know i think Vinci showed some of this i think uh the robot book certainly did um that that is not true you can have vastly different lived experiences um and different perspectives and come to the table like that and i the way that this story makes each of those perspectives very clear it's it's what muddies the vote right as you as a reader are going ah damn maybe yes maybe no is the right answer um but it just it does a really good job of of doing that concisely and notably many of the there are people who come across as good guys on both sides of the vote right. like there are people who are like we need to help them we need to liberate them and there are people who are like we would be imposing our own views on this uh, on this other world if we were to go in now and both of those are like yeah that it seems like a good argument <laughs> I think the important part is that there's able to be discourse, you know, that it's showing you like a model for the discourse that's mm -hmm. able to happen. And not in terms of like, we need to consider all sides of the argument, but in the sense of like, you can have certain differences and still have solidarity on important issues as long as you're not like coming in wanting to kill other people and that sort of thing. Only there's maybe a difference between discourse and rhetoric, right? Like they're mm -hmm. not being, they're not even trying to persuade anybody. They're saying, here's our position. Here's what we think. And here's why. And I don't take, I don't have the perspective. I didn't feel like it was persuasive. I felt like it was, here's what we're offering. Here's what we think. Mm -hmm. Right. I will say though, so we're not actually seeing them converse Mm -hmm. Right? We're seeing them state yeah. their opinion and then we, move on. We don't mm -hmm. know what it looks like in the room or rooms, presumably, because some of these people yeah. probably don't have bodies. Right. Uh, and then second, we are seeing a vote that had to be, like, did not require 100% one side or the other. Like, we're seeing a very particular mm -hmm. kind of vote in which one vote could sway. Um and that really does change how a conversation goes. If you're in a committee and the decision that you need to make needs to be unanimous <laughs> mm -hmm. or something like that, that shifts the tone of the, the discussion. So we're seeing a particular structure here that, that really does simplify everything. Yeah, with the implication that like, it, this could have been like 50 something percent voting, yes, let's have unity. And then they would have just opened that rift right up and said, hello yeah with with whatever the procedures are but like they didn't there wasn't the implication that you needed a two-thirds majority vote on this incredibly significant <laughs> issue exactly yeah i just had a thought that is mm -hmm. related to something previous like mm -hmm. not current but i think because i just have up on my screen right now the immediate email like hey sorry i know it's late but i just had to share this with someone and there's no one in the world i'd rather share it with than you you like me i'm primrose right i'm the primrose of our universe because i'm cast clearly the person caspian wants to talk to the most 
So I'm Primrose. Except that you are probably not a cat. Like, I'm not saying that this universe is... I'm not saying that A6K doesn't have cats working for the Foundation, because I'm pretty sure that canonically they do, even though SCP doesn't have canon. But I, I, Caspian seems surprised. Does seems it seems new to him that Primrose is a talking cat, and I don't think Caspian is sending an email to his non-talking cat. Right, but I feel like I'm in it as an analog. Like yes, yeah, I am Primrose. Me, I am Primrose's opposite number here Mm -hmm. in our universe that's who i am this this email is just a big elaborate introduction to your metamor it's like your your poly like the partner of your polyamorous partner being like hey i met this person and they kind of are a little like you you're like are they another cat (laughs) like yeah they're another cat but okay so i had thought that David had had a friend that was a marine biologist and is dead. That's the Primrose analog, right? Yeah, um, that is also the yeah, Lisa. Lisa would have loved this. An old friend of mine, she was studying this anomalous coral substance when, well, things can be a bit more dangerous on my side of reality. And like, I mean... There, there's also a potential thing of this as like all of these are like sparking off a little like fanfic ideas right like <laughs> what if caspian has a cat at home like what if caspian has a calico cat and like oh. will be petting you know go home and pet his calico cat and think of primrose like there, this this story seems to kind of encourage you to like to do that like who do I cast into these into these counterpart roles? Which I guess is a thing that alternate dimension stories always do, right? Is like, right. Well, what's the what's what is the Avalon version of this SCP? You know, who what's yeah. what's Doctor Clef like in this universe? All of this stuff of of known characters. You know, like I am positive that someone somewhere read this story and immediately started working on like a story set in this universe about the head council of the Foundation who are all like very loosely defined characters in the in the collaborative canon um but yeah i think the question of who who are you who is the reader in this is is super interesting like yeah who would the head of alternate dimensional research for the scp email trusting that they wouldn't tell Mm-hmm. and is he so, like, when, when I originally read that ending, and he says, um, he says he knows who just to, just who to send it to, right? I, I assumed that was plural. I thought he meant his peers, his colleagues, and that it was a little bit of a fomenting of revolution. Um, but I also, I now agree that it's probably just the one person like it's it is just you not y'all um but he says i can think of someone who would appreciate all of this which certainly could be a group but uh yeah yeah there's there's more of the vibe of like i'm gonna share this with one special person yeah 
I, I think I had a little hope in my heart that he was going to be starting starting some shit. Uh, in which you need a group of people to start some shit, not two people. Yeah, that would be a long project. It would be. Like, if he's going up to start things, he's, like, it's a a more difficult project than, like, let's put together a bomb. It's like, right. let's figure out a way to change the SCP Foundation towards pacifism. Yeah. Hi, I'm interrupting as Lucy from the future. This is normally the part of the podcast where we talk about what we are watching, listening to, or reading next. I was choosing our next sci-fi utopian text in this episode, and I selected... Actually, I'm not revealing what I chose today. Since we recorded this episode early in November, the sag after strike has ended with what seemed like favorable terms for the actors. Yay! We've been recording episodes on utopian science fiction generally these last few months in solidarity with the strikes, which we were thrilled to do. Now we are happy with the outcome of the strikes and able to return to the original concept for this podcast, Star Trek. It's weird to say it without a preface that one should not watch Struck Works. So next month, we'll actually be talking about the Star Trek movie First Contact, the episode we planned and recorded as our first actual episode of the podcast back in the summer of 2023. We chose First Contact because, well, it was meant to be our first contact with this podcast, and the film deals with lots of Star Trek famous firsts. But real life happened, and this will now be our fifth episode, not the first. You may notice some differences in our style and recording setups. We were definitely still warming up. But we still dig in on the elements we want to talk about and something we love, Star Trek. And I think you'll like the episode. We've talked about continuing this sci-fi utopian cycle we've started separately of Star Trek properties, and it's still possible that will happen at some point in the utopian future. If you're eager to hear it, let us know. We're about to talk about all of the places you can find us and the podcast. And though we don't say so at the end of this episode, next month will finally be a real Star Trek podcast. See you then. Oh, and hey... Don't mention any of this to past us. We don't want to fuck up the timeline or anything. You can find links and show notes at beforethefuture.space. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found the show. If you have any questions or comments, you can comment on our website or write to us at onscreen at beforethefuture.space. I'm Lucy Arnold and sometimes blog at intertextualities.com. I'm Gregory Avery Weir, and you can find me at ludusnovus.net or on co-host at cohost.org slash G-A-W. And I'm Melissa Avery Weir, and I live at urson.net or on Mastodon as melissa at urson.life. Our music is Let's Pretend by Josh Woodward, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. Thank you for listening. After, surrounded by butterflies, children, and laughter. It's a fairy tale story, so let's just pretend. Hallelujah, amen, it's the end. Happily ever after the end. That's my fan thing. <laughs> oh, the... oh, just one last thing, though. Pussy. <laughs> <laughs>